Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. My guest today is the writer of Medievalist.net. Please welcome Peter Tronjanski. And today we're going to discuss the Mongol conquest of Baghdad. And before we start, I always ask, how did you come across writing for Medievalist.net? What and what is Medievalist? Oh. Oh, 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 thanks for having me. Um, like Medievalist.net's been around uh, since 2008. Um, and I've been, uh, I, I co-founded it. Uh, I'm the owner, editor. And basically we are trying to offer everything that's interesting about the Middle Ages to the wider world. So, uh, you know, that could be uh, uh, what's happening in the medieval academic world to uh, what's on movies and video games. Um, yeah, and we so we have uh, we have a bunch of writers on our on our staff, and we also have a, a few podcasts going. So, mm. uh, yeah, so we have a lot of fun here. Here, I can I can, I can see that. And uh, let's talk. What what is it about the Mongol conquest of Baghdad that fascinated you? Before we go into that part. Yeah, it's been kind of a pet project for me for about 20 years, to be honest. And I really actually got interested in it when the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq happened. <laughs> so mm. way back then, and there was there was articles then talking about, well, this is the first invasion of Baghdad, first time Baghdad's been conquered since the Mongols did it in uh, 1258 and uh, and you kind of read like oh the, the city was completely destroyed then and uh you know the, uh, there was kind of comparisons and i was kind of like just as a historian just kind of intrigued by like all right what what happened like well you know uh, take a look so uh, you know uh, I've, been, I've been pretty busy over the years with my things but i kind of slowly been looking at the kind of research and, and the kind of sources on it and um and uh, it's, a, it's a very fascinating episode so mm. i really i really enjoy talking about it the other seems to be and we are going to have an episode on islamic spain al andalus late, later on this year i and mm. i've been looking forward to that one but it seems to opposites are fascinating to me because while al andalus seemed to have a golden age of literacy and the, the Abbasids seem to have a golden age of science, and that's what's really intriguing to me about the Abbasids. And we will take a look at the fall of the Abbasids today, but I just want to mention it that to me, the interesting part about the Abbasids is the science part and the house of wisdom itself, which we, of course, will get back to during the Mongol conquest. But that's really intriguing to me, and I, I love this kind of history. Oh, yeah. The, the Abbasids are, uh, again, a wonderful kind of, uh, kind of, society to look at and Baghdad um, 
you know, it comes founded in the eighth century. Uh, immediately explodes. It really has a unique art. While you can't see it today, I'm sorry for interrupting you there. But yeah. while you can't see it today, it's, it really has a unique architecture. But by being a round city, I think it's really unique for medieval times as well. Yeah, like the idea, like this is a completely planned city at the beginning. Uh, you know, it's uh, constructed really out of nothing. Uh, and, uh, you know, within a couple of generations, this you know, vying to be the one of the largest cities of the world and pr- the most probably the richest as well. So, mm. you know, it, it was it was great. It, it, it's a lot of stories can be said about that. You know, like by the time, mm. you know, we get to the 13th century, a lot of, you know, history has taken place. And, you know, Baghdad is not the city it once was, but it's still um, the Abbasids are still ruling in the, in that mm. city. Uh, and it, it is one of the longest uh, dynasties of the Middle Ages. Mm. So let's talk about the last, I believe he's the last caliph for, Al, I'm going to try to say his name right here, Al-Mustasim Bilat. And how does he come to power? How does he rule? What is he one of the causes for the Mongol conquests at the time that makes uh... them succeed? Well, he's not, not quite a, like a, a cause, but, you know, he's not a help either. Like uh, he's... He's kind of brought in, um, he's the son of the previous caliph, but in that era, you know, being the son, you know, or even the eldest son doesn't guarantee you succession. Mm-hmm. So he was actually kind of chosen as, because he was a bit more compliant. Uh, and there were already, you know, when he kind of gets chosen in the 1240s, uh, there was already, the big concern was the Mongols attacking. And they, he was seen as a person to be, to be, would well work better with the Mongols. We we uh, talked about this in the last episode about the two parter on the Ottoman Empire, and uh, mm-hmm. there there it was co- quite common up until the, I believe the nineteenth century to kill their brothers. Was this the cross in the Abbasids as well? Oh no no they didn't kill each other <laughs> they, uh, they but like you know usually they wind up you know just living good lives and stuff like that. So there's actually always oh, quite a lot of like Abbasids running around, uh, which you know even they. It's the reason why they actually per, uh, persevere after the uh, Mongol conquest, but um, but no, no, like he's kind of brought in, uh, kind of chosen by the the politics, and even like that, like being uh, the ruler is you know uh, doesn't give you full power. There's quite a lot of bureaucracy in the uh, you know Baghdad in the Caliphate, uh, so you know he has to kind of deal with kind of various factions you know he's got a vizier uh ibn al-akami who's uh who's a shiite and uh, that causes certain you know mm-hmm. uh, religious tensions because of sunni shiite uh issues that you know come up from time to time in mm-hmm. baghdad um he's got other like officials that you know have semi you know uh importance so that you know you can't just do away with them so and, uh, you know, these guys' neighbors that, you know, where, like, the Abbasids uh, don't have a lot of, you know, uh, political power, but they do have a lot of moral suasion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, um, you know, they they see themselves as a kind of, like, the leader of the Islamic world. In, in, in some ways, mm-hmm. they are, like, a religious leader, but... They do still have a hold on Mecca Medina. The Fatimids doesn't have Mecca oh, oh. Medina, do they? 
No, no, but neither would the Abbasids. By this time, like, uh, it's under a Ubid control. Like, and even, even not even that, it's under Mamluk control. Um, and they often, they, these kind of other kingdoms kind of pay a little lip service, but like, they don't send money to the Abbasids or or anything like that. It's uh, very much like it's it's nice to have the support of the Abbasids, but it's not necessary. Mm. So, what was the state of, in general of the Abbasids? What it was a former shell of what it used to be, right? But was yeah, it still like, kind of like, decent empire caliphate at this point. Well. Well, the caliphate, like the uh, the what you say of the the Abbasid rule would have been, you know, Baghdad, um, the areas around it, and going down to say Basra. So they kind of like think of Iraq, like the southern two thirds of Iraq, because they don't even control Mosul. Like there's a an emir in Mosul who's kind of a semi ally with 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 the Abbasids. Uh, but as as I kind of tell, he doesn't actually come to their aid when it when it comes when it comes for the the actual siege, uh, quite the opposite. But they uh, so they they still Baghdad's still uh, a, a large city. Uh, it's still you know fairly wealthy. Uh, you know, but everyone kind of recognizes it still has better day. You know, it's had better days. But uh, uh, apparently, they had quite a thriving music scene in Baghdad at the time. So. Hmm. Let's talk about something that fascinates me in quite a lot, and that is, of course, the House of Wisdom. Well, because that would be the, as we talked about, the Abbasids did have a golden age of science, but was it still going strong, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad? And let's briefly explain what was the House of Wisdom to those who may not be aware. Yeah, yeah, like uh, back in the early ninth uh, century, uh, you know, when the caliphs. Uh, decided to kind of create like basically a library and slash you know institution to support scholarship right and that could be you know translations of uh, ancient writings it could be scientific works uh, you know astronomy was a huge thing medicine things like that um, and you know uh, during the heyday of Baghdad it was literally well known for you know mm. a lot of scientific advancements and, and, and you know a lot of great research uh, wonderful stuff um, I believe a lot, a lot of the science we had have today is times the contribution of the Abbasid House of Wisdom, right? Isn't that's the case? Oh, yeah, yeah, like the Abbasids and, and, and the succession, because a lot of this, like the Fatimids set up their own uh, House of Wisdom, you know, any kind of ruler in the Arabic world uh, to beef up their credentials would often like hire scholars. Uh, they'd be interested in that, you know, especially you want like, you know, physicians, uh, things like that. So like even say 13th century, there's lots and lots of people writing uh, about works, um, doing this or that. It's it's much more spread out. Uh, but like Baghdad, still you know center of like lots of you know people that do learning. As I said, music was quite you know uh, uh, a big deal in in Baghdad around that time with like people you know writing a lot of scholarship on the topic. So it was still kind of a golden age in. In Baghdad, while the caliphate was more or less falling apart, you would say, yeah, like it's it's still going. Like these these you know institutions can carry on. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know uh, the issue is like often people get paid better elsewhere. So uh, you find you find like a lot of scholars they tend to move around the uh, uh, you know from Persia, Iran, you know into like Damascus, into Egypt. 
Um, you know, people look for their best jobs. And, uh, you know, at that time, say, you know, Baghdad was still doing well, but it was still in com competition with other places. Um, but like, I, I have a sense that like, the, you know, the Abbasid government, you know, is kind of coming along, but it's not something that's, it doesn't have a lot of military strength to kind of back it up. It just doesn't have the money. So, it, But is Al-Mustah similar, sorry if I say his name wrong here, but is the, does it recognize that the empire is falling apart? Is it trying to do something about it? Or is it just trying to kind of keep what he has yeah. for the moment? I think... I think he's just kind of trying to keep what he has. Like he does get a bad rap, I think, through history. And like uh, there's kind of a lot of tales, kind of him being, you know, uh, you know, wanting to keep his money. He doesn't want to pay for armies and st stuff like that. But it's it's hard to tell. Like we don't know that much about him. Um, you know, he doesn't. You know, like he's he's running the. You know, he is the caliph for about like uh, 16 years before. Uh, uh the you know baghdad kind of get uh gets de defeated so um it's not a particularly bad time to be living in baghdad but you know at the same time you you know the forces of history are coming down on him hmm. so let's talk about the other side the mongol expansion how how is the mongol ex expansion going at the time because they are getting closer and closer to mm -hmm. baghdad aren't they yeah yeah so like you know the mongols kind of first kind of enter into the Middle East when they uh, come with the war with the Quasimarian Empire. And that's uh, basically an empire that was in with today's kind of Central Asia. Um, they and they go to war with Genghis, uh, Chinggis Khan gets to go to war with them in 1219, 1221. Uh, they're basically defeated and routed. The, the remnants kind of flee into the Middle East. Um, and the Mongols, they do send like forces into them. And uh, like one kind of army uh, is uh, kind of moves into what is now kind of Azerbaijan. Mm. So just around the uh, South Caspian Sea. And uh, and they kind of set up this kind of like a mini estate there uh, to take kind of control. So um, by the 1240s, there's a guy named Beju Noyan, and he's the kind of leader of this Mongol force. And he's, he's actually done a fairly good job where he's um, been able to defeat the Seljuk Turks, uh, the Armenians, the Georgians, um, uh, even uh, taken like liege of, uh, of Mosul, uh, and even, uh, even the Crusaders at Antioch, the Principality of Antioch, uh, swears allegiance to uh, the Mongols uh, through Beju. So... Um, so he's able to kind of get like, al well, allies is not the right word. Uh, underlings would be uh, that he's kind of is setting up. And there are um, movements against the, the Abbasid Caliphate, like a little kind of military incursions, kind of testing out the waters. But uh, Beju never thinks he's able to uh, defeat the the uh, uh, Baghdad. So he never launches an invasion against him, but he's always there. Um, are they right on the borders of the Abbasid yeah, at this point? Yeah, yeah. Think of like, if you can kind of imagine where Azerbaijan is. Like, there's that's an area of very good uh, fields, so that's where the Mongols will keep their horses. And like all the areas around him are basically uh, have Mongol overlordship around him, and they, they're able to use those armies 
Uh, so they have a quite a quite a presence for quite a long time. So the, the everyone knew that the Mongols were around, uh, and mm-hmm. it was just you know uh, it was always kind of a fear that like you know one day the Mongols would come mm-hmm. in force, and that's what that happens in the twelve fifties. We discussed in the last episode of our second part on the Ottoman Empire that about this Ottoman-Swedish alliance in the 1700s, and it was kind of like enemies of my enemies, my friend. And was this a chance? Did, did, the, did the Byzantines and the Abbasids kind of realize that this could be a force to be reckoned with? Did they kind of discuss having an alliance against the Mongols? Or did that, like we said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Or did they just kind of hope that the other one wouldn't be take be taken and then yeah like i yeah i think you know there's there was always kind of always talk of people like let's do an alliance like there's even um the uh the Somalis uh, apparently sent an envoy out to uh western europe to see if they could uh, bring up an alliance between various islamic states and crusader and christians against this mongol threat he was kind of laughed at uh, uh of course uh by like kind of western european leaders only only to have them you know europe being invaded by the mongols uh, soon after <laughs> in the 1240s but um they they're not laughing I, now no 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 it's like yeah there was sort of quite a fear um but it's hard you know for various kind of states to, like to make alliances like uh, you know like the abbasids had hoped that, like, you know, the say the rulers of Damascus and Aleppo and even Egypt would come to their aid. Mm-hmm. Um, they, those plans turn for nothing. But uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, there's lots of mm-hmm. other kind of states that have decided to, you know, work with the Mongols. And when I say work, I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, pay allegiance to the Mongols, pay their taxes, and ultimately uh, send troops to the Mongols. And um, you see quite a lot of that, like uh, to the east, like where is Iran now today? Um, where a lot of people are kind of, you know, saying that you know, let's let's work with the Mongols, let's let's help them out, and they can get rid of our enemies. Mm-hmm. And that that really, really leads into when the Mongol invasion starts, mm-hmm. uh, uh, first against the Ismailis in in what is today uh, the mountains of Iran. But let, let's uh, talk about a little bit what if here. Let, let's say there was an alliance between the Abbasids and the Byzantines, so even unlikely as it sounds, would the joint forces have been able, even Byzantines at this point, is after the Fourth Crusade, of course, is a former shell of itself mm-hmm. as well, but would the joint force with the Byzantines and the Abbasids have been able to defeat the Mongols, or would they have uh, been defeated regardless? No. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Like, uh, you know, you often have like a lot of these states are are fairly weak in themselves. Like, uh, and even like alliances are really tough to tough to maintain, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's um, you know, like it's just the kind of the nature of politics. Like, you know, like your your nearby enemy, like you're you're always kind of hoping that they're going to be you know defeated, um, and. At, at first, you might think that like the Mongols will be uh, somehow in help. Like there was like early, like when the Mongols first kind of appear on the scene, even the Crusaders, when they kind of learn about them, they think that they're going to help them. Like they literally thought like these these were kind of Christians in some way that were going to help them defeat, you know, conquer Baghdad, help them retake Jerusalem, and uh, 
it's you know only as uh, once they start establishing contacts that they realize that mongols really just wanted everyone to surrender to them uh mm. and take over the world so they they don't you know they you know they they have trouble kind of forming alliances and that's just the nature of the medieval world is it's it's hard to you know come to the support of a previous enemy. So. I mean, even the alliances in that time were broken left and right. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it, they, they, were, they didn't last very long. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, like, um, you know, once, you know, once you can accept that well, you, the Mongols can rule over you, it, you know, there are benefits to that. So sometimes it's better to ally uh, or, you know, work with the biggest... Uh, if you surrender, yes, down. that would be a benefit. But if you didn't, that would be devastating if you didn't surrender to the Mongols. Though. It, exactly, exactly. And that's what really happens with the two the two kind of forces that really uh, decide to fight out the Mongols, which are the Ismailis, uh, which are like the, those are the ones that you know we call like the assassins, right? Mm. Uh, uh, kind of the, the real assassins, creed, if, in a sense. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, those, those are people. Mm. So, but yeah, let's let's talk about the Mongol army. What what was the Mongol army like? What made them so powerful? As so were this unbeatable force to to be reckoned with, yeah. to, to, for the lack of a better word. Yeah, the uh, like uh, they're, they're based on the kind of the Great Steppe, which is this you know uh, flat you know plains lands that extend from you know kind of present day Hungary all the way you know across Siberia uh, to like northern China, um, and these you know are, are like ideal grazing lands, and for like uh, eons uh, they were home to countless kind of peoples. Uh, that were had like a lot of warrior abilities, ability, you know, uh, good, very strong cavalry. Um, the what happens is there's a, a big unification under Chinggis Khan at the early 13th century, where he's able to kind of set this up, and he's able to start, you know, picking off his neighbors, um, and moreover, uh, incorporating them into his armies. So uh, you know, you have uh, uh, you know, forces like uh, where you have peoples from different areas kind of serving with the Mongols, uh, including, as we'll see in Baghdad, you have like Chinese engineers uh, working mm-hmm. there uh, as part of the army. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, the Mongol Empire just grows quite a, quite a bit as they kind of conquer areas. They, you know, conquer what's, you know, present day uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, they, they go into Poland, into Hungary. Um, they uh are in, in south uh they're uh even like up against the byzantine empire uh they uh the byzantines are are very good at re- recognizing that they're they're uh, their overlordship too to a certain degree um but uh yeah and they have this quite you know massive army and then you know it's kind of decided around the year 1253 uh to we're going to have this large campaign to take over the middle east and like the idea was we're going to take everything from all the way up to uh, cairo up to the nile river was the mm-hmm. that was the plan uh and it's it's the mongol uh khan at the time mange uh selects one uh, uh his brother hulego to mm-hmm. lead this force and he grants him uh two out of every 10 soldiers in the Mongol Empire to do it. 
Did it happen because we Adriana referred to an old episode of the not the old two episodes ago we did part one of the Ottoman Empire and we talked about the siege of Bursa which took like eight, nine years and they didn't have the proper siege because they didn't have the proper siege equipment. Did they have this kind of siege equipment necessary to take Baghdad or wasn't that necessary? Oh no! They, they had uh, they actually had a lot of uh, good siege forces. Uh, like I said, they brought in Chinese engineers. Uh, that that's that was their specialty. Uh, you know, mm. um, to you know, uh, so they're they're able to kind of do that. Like when they they have a lot of tough sieges, especially in mountains of Iran, because those are really difficult places to, to besiege. Mm. Right? Uh, the the Somalis are are able to get up quite high into these kind of places, and and in in some cases, you know, they, they're just going to hold out until they run out of food, but. Uh, the Mongols have a, a fairly good force. As I said like they're bringing in, uh, you know, uh, quite a variety of peoples. You know, besides their own, like you know, particular own, their own forces. But uh, they're they're quite good. Like uh, there was one. It was for, for a long time it was thought that somehow the Mongols brought in gunpowder weapons with them for the siege of Baghdad. But that's kind of been kind of debunked. Mm-hmm. So, so what kind of siege craft did they have? Did they have trebuchets, catapults, or did they have a but aware of European technology at this point of of siege craft, or did they have their own Asian variant to put it that way? Uh they they probably had uh, yeah they had definitely had like uh, catapults and uh, kind of those kind of particular siege weapons that you kind of associate with Western Europe. Um, there was probably a you know a kind of other kind of interesting materials. They may have had like kind of primitive rockets that they uh, used, but not not at Baghdad. Uh, but like, yeah, by when they come up to Baghdad, they're able to uh, launch a fairly effective siege. Uh, you know, toss some boulders, even uh, even the palm trees. They're ripping out of the ground to toss them against the walls of Baghdad. Uh, so, yeah, like it, 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 it was a very methodical siege. So it was quite it was quite good. Let's let's talk about the Mongol before we go into the siege itself. Let's talk about the Mongol army for a bit. Let's, what what was that? How you you have a number? We we not talk about how to talk about the Abbasid army as well, of course. But what before? First, I want to begin with the Mongol army. So what what? How huge numbers you are talking about here? What kind? You mentioned cavalry and what other yeah. what other types of army? So Halagos force, yeah. Yeah, Halaga's force, again, is, is said to be like two out of every ten Mongol uh, soldiers. It's hard to give a number on that, but you know, we're probably looking at a couple hundred thousand men overall. And, uh, you know, th- this is, you know, a force. It moves incredibly slowly across Asia to uh, get to. Um, uh, and that's in part because these are, this is, you know, families uh, coming with them, uh, herds of sheep. That need to be, you know, grazed as well as horses. Uh, so it's a very slow moving force that, like, eventually gets to the Middle East by about two or two and a half years, uh, which is it, quite a long time. But um, and they're meanwhile they're being supplemented by kind of various, you know, uh, Iranian forces, people from Afghanistan that are coming in. Uh, they. Uh, it's said like there's a thousand uh, kind of Chinese engineers that are brought in. We have an account. One of the accounts of the siege of Baghdad comes from uh, the kind of Chinese commander uh, of these forces. Uh, so they can uh, they're kind of bringing this in and they're kind of slowly 
feast uh, moving along. Hilago is kind of feasting as he goes away, as he goes along, accepting kind of tributes from the various peoples. But they're able, you know, uh, their first mission was to defeat the Somalis. Uh, and they do that, you know, fairly well. Like, uh, the Somalis had strongholds in, like, the mountains of northern Iran. Uh, they're able to kind of, you know, defeat them one by one, capture the Somali ruler. He's executed. Uh, uh, and that kind of leaves them in control of you know, uh, Iran and basically near the doorstep of Baghdad by, by 1258. Hmm. Um, that's, that's sort of the Abbasid army. What, what was compared compared to the Mongol army? Because it's quite huge, as you kind of stated. So what was the Abbasid army? Like, we talked briefly about this, but let's from how did it gather force to counterattack the Mongols? Well, they, they they would just hire people. They, there would be there was plenty of people to hire to, for kind of forces, and they would, there might be some local forces. But like the kind of typical thing in the Middle East is to hire uh, troops that you know have that kind of professional you know uh, backing. Uh, they, you know there you know uh, there was one criticism of the caliph was that he he wound up uh, dismissing about twenty thousand men in 1258 because he didn't think there was going to be an attack and then uh he didn't want to pay them so uh and then he has to at the end he has to repay him to bring him back in but um yeah like you know it's often like a very big mix of you know a few local kind of you know kind of standing army and whoever you can kind of hire that's kind of around uh, the, uh, so, but the, the, their force was much, much smaller. Maybe we're looking at like 40,000 men uh, at their peak uh, that would be able to defend Baghdad. What about the defense system of Baghdad? What would, what would that look like at the time? Uh, like this, you have to kind of think of Baghdad, like the, the idea of the round city is, is long gone. Uh, like, uh, there is cities over across both sides of the Tigris River, and uh, it's only that the, the uh, west. Are we talking the, about uh, the twelve fifty eight? Yeah, yeah, twelve fifty eight. Like uh, so, like on the eastern side, there is like a, a walled area uh, with, with fairly good walls. Uh, you know, kind of the city, but like there are a lot of suburbs that have no walls at all. You know, um, and you kind of think of Baghdad as a collection of different neighborhoods right so uh part of them you know the main one is well defended uh has gates walls uh everything you want um you're also defended by you know have the river as well that can be a good defense or or not you know um and then there are other areas that just uh you know have no real defenses at all so uh they will those are the ones that go quickly so did they have fortresses nearby? Did they have war and, and that no, kind of no, defense? No, they would. No, they wouldn't. Uh, like you know, I have to think, you have to kind of think of uh, like the kind of Middle East. It wouldn't have like castles, you know, like that are dotting the landscape, things like that. There would be some fortresses here and there, uh, but it, basically, a lot of it, you know, was to keep the cities itself would be you know, have some good defenses, um, you know, like uh, Aleppo, Damascus were really known to have really strong defenses at this time. Uh, and, but like Baghdad, you know, we don't really know too much about it, but, you know, it doesn't seem like they had anything particularly um, mm-hmm. defensive. Uh, 
you know, this is we have to remember this is a place that hasn't really experienced war in 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 generations, like a real invasion, mm. uh, real fighting. So it's not like there's any kind of defensive, you know, big defensive uh, areas to to maintain. So, so that's the what is the reaction when the Mongols arrive outside? I see this huge army arriving outside Baghdad. Yeah. For, for for like the months preceding up, like Kulago was kind of told that he the best case so, solution was to have the caliph submit to him, right? Peacefully mm-hmm. take it over, uh, just rule on it. But if he couldn't do that, you know, he uh, was expected to take over and defeat it militarily. So he does try for quite a while to um, give uh, the uh, caliphs offers and have them bring in submission um they always kind of rejected like uh, uh and you know it's eventually it, it takes a while uh for like all the kind of troops to get put in place uh by but by, by november of 1250 uh, 1257 um they they begin the campaign uh launching uh various attacks uh uh, various armies that head into uh, what kind of is Iraq and converge on Baghdad. So, um, so the the Mongols have, are coming uh, mostly from from the east, although they're coming in like three different major forces. But they're also coming in from the north. Or if you remember that guy named Beju, mm. um, he he was back in like uh, near Azerbaijan at this time. Uh, he he sends his armies. He brings with him like the Armenians, the Georgians, and maybe even a few Crusaders from Antioch. Uh, that would be a, a really interesting. Well, they're like, yay, let's fight the infidels and see them perish. Was that the reason they joined yeah. the Mongols? Well, no, they, they joined because they had to. But uh, they 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 were like uh, like the Armenian and Georgian chroniclers. Uh, they they have a very good spin on it. Um, they often say like that. Oh, we led the forces. Uh, you know, we were the first ones to attack Baghdad, and that's you know the honest, the honest truth about it is that's because they were told by the Mongols to be you guys going first. You know, so because they're they're like cannon fodder, really. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, they they're one of uh, you know quite a collection. You know, and there's a fun like you know like so there's people like the the ruler of Mosul is this Amir. Uh, and he's kind of like watching these things, and he has both allegiance to the caliphate and to the Mongols. And uh, you know, there's a point where uh, he gets two requests on the eve of war, and uh, the the Mongols ask for siege equipment, uh, but while the uh, uh, caliph asks for more musicians, and uh, he says, you know, he says to his followers, "Oh man, just look at this." and just look at these two requests and we know how the war is going to go. And, you mm-hmm. know, just, I feel bad for Baghdad. So, mm-hmm. and he was right. So, um, yeah. So like he, like him, he's also kind of sides up with the Mongols. Mostly he doesn't go to Baghdad until after the siege, but he, he does. He flees the caliph, flees the city. Uh, the caliph, uh, you know, like this. So the caliph is in Baghdad. Um, he sees these armies kind of converging on them. Uh, and of, like, it was really interesting how the Mongols conducted this campaign by having multiple fronts come after them. And basically they're kind of trying to push all the people 
uh, like to be refugees into Baghdad. And I've often, you know, I was really intrigued by this aspect because the Mongols seem to have this um, uh, military strategy that they took from their great hunts. So, so yeah, it's been recorded uh, with kind of various observers, the Mongols, that, the, you know, uh, the, the Khans would set up these giant hunts where th- tens of thousands of men would be sent to kind of corral animals, uh, you know, across the steppe. Mm. And they would go hundreds of miles in, in different directions to corral and bring them all into a relatively small area of just, a you know, maybe a few square kilometers. And if you can think of, like, they're just trying to push herds of, you know, uh, you know, uh, elk or, 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 or kind of animals like that. So they can be hunted down uh, by the Mongols at their pleasure at this little one spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a wonderful idea of how they can coordinate strategy, but they're able to kind of send forces from various directions, pushing many refugees into Baghdad itself. Um, the the caliph responds by sending out a force of about 20,000 men to go attack one of these kind of uh, uh, columns of Mongol forces. They they head out northwest. They they initially defeat this small like Mongol force, uh, and they think they've uh, won a big victory. And they continue the pursuit, only to wind up in this trap where the Mongols have kind of lured them into an area where they can um, overflood the dikes, break dikes, and cause flooding. And they basically annihilate that this uh, twenty thousand man army. Of of, uh, of of the Abbasids uh, and, and take that out before they even get to the city. So, but they... something you mentioned earlier that's kind of fascinated me a bit was that you said that it wasn't there was on the both sides, right? The walls there was areas where there was a wall and there was areas where there wasn't a wall. So, did it use the Mongols use this as an advantage to try to enter the city where there wasn't any walls, or did it just Oh yeah, yeah. Like like all the other cities. Like they, when they get to Basra, when they get to Hilla, they they immediately get uh, the city is immediately surrendered to them uh, as as they as as they as they should have for their own sake. Uh, so like yeah, like an unwalled city. Um, you know, like it. You know, they would like send like a person say, "Hey, you're gonna surrender." Mm. Uh, you know. And, you know, thank you very much, you know, um, and uh, they're able to kind of do that, you know, quickly and, you know, and people like either flee, like, you know, because uh, there's plenty of villages and things like that and farmers that like are scared and they, you know, want to look for protection. So they're all starting to head to Baghdad. Uh, but like other places, they, they surrender quite quickly. Um, you know, they, they know what's good for them. Mm. I mean, with the largest... I was referring to Baghdad right now, where you said there was it wasn't a round city it used to be. So how easy was it for the Mongols to enter the city when when it it must have grown quite a lot, right? It, it from the yeah. it was founded. Yeah, like uh, by uh, you know say mid January of twelve fifty eight, the Mongol forces start arriving. Um, they first get to the, like the western suburbs, uh, which are on the other side of the Tigris, and they immediately just uh, capitulate that area. Like that area is not fought over. 
Uh, so they're able to basically go to one side of, uh, can take over to one side of the Tigris River. Um, the walled area, they basically start moving their kind of troops and surround um, this walled area, uh, the walled city, the remaining walled city with uh, their own ditch and, uh, uh, you know, siege works. So uh, they kind of spend a few days. So like the siege actually doesn't start until January 29th. So mm-hmm. it takes it takes like a basically a couple of weeks to kind of prepare uh, the kind of fighting to the ground, and it's on January 29th that they begin to send like the catapults mm-hmm. and start uh, attacking the walls. So, so let's talk about the siege itself. Then how 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 long time does it last, and how how not, is it? What is the siege? Not long. Like? <laughs> The, the siege is basically the Mongol forces are kind of surrounding the city. Uh, the, uh, they have catapults, you know, trebuchet type machines firing uh, to take out. And their aim was to take out particular uh, gates uh, that were always the kind of the weak point of any kind of like uh, wall force was always to take out a gate. And by February 5th, they are able to uh, break down uh, the one of the main gates to the city and take control of it. Uh, and and so the caliph at this point tries to make a dash uh, by river with ships. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, uh, there's a Mongol uh, force that is uh, kind of set up along the riverbanks. They have their own own ships as well. They're able to uh, force the caliph to return back to Baghdad. Uh, and and wipe out that kind of escape opportunity. And so by February 5th, uh, the Mongols, you know, are able to kind of capture like one of the main gates and from there take control of the walls very quickly. But they don't enter the city at this point. They they kind of take over and then negotiations begin uh, to for the surrender. And that's always a fun part, too. So how yeah. how does that, how does that go the surrendering and entering the city? Yeah, so the Mongols, uh, you know, uh, start uh, basically these have so called negotiations with various kind of forces. Like the caliph is at this point trying to figure out a way to you know survive, uh, and he's, he he you mean, the, you mean the Abbasids, not the not the Mongols, I mean, I yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Abbasids yeah. are trying to survive. They send out various officials. Uh, and the Mongols at first are sometimes like, oh, you, you know, we accept your surrender, uh, but like, I want you, to, but as part of your surrender, I want you to bring out all these men. Uh, and uh, once actually, once a large part of the uh, of the Abbasid army is marched out of the city, the uh, Mongols take them a, a little far away and then they execute them all. So mm. <laughs> they wait. So you have like these people where like all these officials wind up you know, uh, leading more men out, they die. Then the officials get killed themselves. Uh, and finally, the Abbasid Caliph on the 10th, uh, so he himself uh, walks out and surrenders the city, uh, surrenders himself to the Mongols. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after that, then is the, uh, 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 the Mongols have to decide what they're going to do with the city. Mm-hmm. Because the, as we mentioned before, the House of Wisdom, which is actually kind of an important part of this siege, because when they entered the city, and I read lost Islamic history, this summer, which was really good, and 
he talks about in the book where how the Mongol conquest of Baghdadi, where how they throw how the oh, house of wisdom Steve, basically Steve. is <laughs> yeah. set on fire basically at the time of the Mongol entering Baghdad. So let's talk about how the house of wisdom is treated here. Yeah, like uh, it's like there, it, it wouldn't be say like there's, a, there's a, at this time a physical house of wisdom, but there are quite a lot of scholars and, and people that are wealthy that live um, there. There's a really good account, and if you're going to give me a, a, a moment, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, I, there's a person that we have an account of the actual what happens to him and his neighborhood uh, when Baghdad falls. His name was Saif al Din Urmawi. And he's this musician. He's like a, a court musician. He's a bit of a, he's a, he's something of a scholar. He's kind of studies the science of music. So he's really, you know, he's really well off. You know, he seems to be living in a really nice neighborhood of Baghdad. We don't know exactly where, but, you know, so, you know, uh, as he, as he recounts it, basically there, when Baghdad is surrendered, uh, Hulagu has various city officials come to meet with them and des- mm. they decide to divvy up the city for looting with all his you know forces mm. right with the various kind of commanders um so you have uh the so safe al din is recounts he says like my at my neighborhood you know beiju noyan comes up uh and he comes up and he comes up with like forces basically he says come up with like naphtha throwers and carpenters and they come up to the gates of his neighborhood and say we'll let if you open this and let us in we'll let you live if you don't we're going to come in and kill you all uh and uh and so Saif al-Din wisely you know with like kind of his other neighbors uh uh help comes out surrenders uh you know and you have this big show of it and then he he really has to kind of figure out what to do um, so he brings Beiju Noyan into his house uh, and immediately starts serving him food, drink, and bringing him all this gold and you know precious stuff. And he's telling his neighbors, I want you to bring in all your wealthiest things. Like if you want to live, you know, we're gonna, you know, treat this person really well. He he immediately uh tells him that you can, you know, Beiju, you can stay here have your other forces go and uh, take out other neighborhoods, you know, if you'll kind of, we'll just, uh, you know, be this kind of base for you, which is pretty kind of throwing the other people under the bus, but I can see where he's kind of coming from. He's really scared, by the way. He is, uh, he thinks he's going to die. But yeah, like he, you know, for the next three days, uh, this, basically it, it was, they were kind of all told that like certain parts of the city would get taken for two days, some for three, some from one, others would be protected. There were a lot of areas that were actually, uh, you know, protected uh, because they had surrendered or there were merchants or uh, for various reasons. But you know, so what, what happens to the caliph on, on this surrender? What, did, did oh, they, oh, the caliph, the caliph, the, yeah, the, yeah, the Caliph, uh, you know, there are a lot of tales about what happens to him. Like Marco Polo has this kind of famous tale where he's he's shut up in a, to a tower with all his gold and riches that he wouldn't, that he wouldn't uh, you know, sell to, you know, provide for his army. And he, he starves to death there. But in reality, um, 
the Mongols just, you know, after a while, after his kind of use to them is come to an end, and this was in a couple of weeks, he's just taken out to the countryside to like a little town just executed, uh, you know, just mm-hmm. out of the way. Um, and, and his family, most of his family were executed as well. So uh, they, uh, but the Mongols they kind of get rid of them. And they are, you know, they can be fairly, you know, ferocious and, uh, when it comes to like these executions, but there's nothing in particular about his that uh, we know of. He just, just taken out to somewhere and, you know, killed. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, Umawi is, you know, meanwhile, like, he has to deal with all these things where um, Beiju is in his house. He's getting this constant stream of precious gold minerals, like carpets, books, and things like that. Uh, and Ormami is pretty clever at this because he's trying to, you know, treat these people really well. And he's telling, oh, this is, you know, this is this wonderful thing, this carpet, this silk, uh, you know, uh, there's this, uh, you know, terrible story um, where he brings in 10 singing women uh, for Beiju to watch, right, at, at, during this. And this is, I think, on day day one. Uh, Beiju is watching this and he uh, sadly he just t- uh, takes a liking to one of the women and rapes her mm. in front of the entire crowd uh, and so he has to come back the, you know come back the next day you know uh, Ormawi is telling his neighbors you have to bring in even more stuff for tomorrow and this is the, this is the way that they're not getting looted they're, they're building their house is not going to get torn up apart they're not going to get killed uh or Maui, you know, uh, being this musician, uh, he eventually, you know, as he's talking to Beiju, Beiju tells him, I want you to go meet Hulagu. So they, of course, he can't say no. Uh, so he comes into Hulagu, to Hulagu's presence, uh, and there's a little more talk back and forth. And he kind of says, yeah, you know, like, uh, what kind of great songs do you know? And and Omawi says, yeah, I, I know a song that could put a man to sleep. And Hulaga was like, wow, you're going to sing that, have that song sing for me. And Omawi's, mm. you know, in his little records is saying, like, and I thought I was going to die because how are they going to put this guy you know, to sleep? But uh, he has this uh, singer. She has really good plays to loot. She's the one kind of sings. He makes sure he drinks three cups of wine. And uh, and, and sure enough, uh, you know, the, uh, Hulagu falls asleep for a few moments. Uh, and uh, uh, or- Ormawi is uh, re- relieved and he actually gets his area spared for the rest of the, of the kind of siege or the rest of the looting, which kind of takes about a, a week to do. Uh, so they wind up the Mongols wind up kind of taking quite a lot of stuff. Uh, they're not necessarily interested in books, um, but you know, there's the one thing that when you hear all these books get destroyed, that's probably not true, but they are eventually bought up uh, by Mongol officials. Uh, there is um, a guy named Nasir Al-Tusi who uh, is was with the Ismailis uh, when the Mongols came, switched sides and became kind of like the leading astronomer slash astrologer slash scientific advisor to Hulagu. And uh, he's able to buy up tens of thousands of volumes of books, which he actually sends to a place called Maraga. 
and there he sets up the observatory of Moraga uh, for astronomy. And this becomes the leading center in the world uh, for uh, scientific research for about like 50 years. So let's talk about Baghdad. What, what happens to Baghdad after the conquest, after the Mongol victory? What, what's the state of Baghdad for the next well, decade or like century? The, yeah, like the, uh, you know, the, the reports that you read in Chronicles, they tend to get exaggerated uh, fairly quickly. So, you know, like the first kind of report says, you know, about 80,000 people died during this siege, which is a terrible number, but, you know, not catastrophic. And, you know, but then, you know, about 20 years later, you're getting reports that it was 200,000, you know, 50 years later, it was 800,000. Uh, then, you know, like by the 16th century, we were saying like 2 million people died mm. or, uh, you know, everyone died. But, then, you know, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, like, you know, it certainly suffered, you know, quite a lot of losses, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, the Mongols by within a, about a month or so decide to leave, they leave behind a force to help clean up the city. Uh, it's, uh, put in charge with, with, with various kind of Arabic officials, uh, kind of in, in the lead. Uh, and, you know, Baghdad kind of goes back to being Baghdad. Uh, it is certainly one of the largest cities in the uh, the Mongol realm that kind of forms in the Middle East, and it's called the Ilkhanate. Uh, but it's not the capital. It's, uh, it's actually, That's actually Tabriz, in which is like northern Iran, is the capital. But uh, Baghdad continues on. There's uh, quite a lot of kind of interesting stuff that happens, uh, you know, over the next few decades, like you know, city politics and stuff like that. Um, but like, there's a sense that like, you know, um, you know, like 14th century writers, like, you know, tend to visit and say, man, like parts of the city is a ruin, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible, but, you know, um, you know, that's, you know, kind of the life of medieval cities in a way, uh, especially in the Middle East, where like, you know, parts can kind of fall into ruin, people just build elsewhere. Uh, the, but yeah, it kind of continues on, but it's certainly lost a lot of its grandeur and, Certainly, it, it's a shock to the people of the Middle East that this city has fallen so quickly, uh, you know, after, you know, after so long kind of being the center of the Islamic world that, you know, Baghdad is no longer, you know, that's that center. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, kind of poetry and stories, just people being really, really shocked and really sad uh, that this has happened. But. Baghdad goes on. Well, was this through the fall of uh, of the Abbasid Caliphate? Yeah, the the Abbasid, like so, a couple. You know, we have like they try and the Mongols try and kill like everybody that's kind of could be an heir or a relative of the Mongols of the Abbasids. But a couple of people do make it out. At least, like, uh, there's actually two people that are able to kind of flee west westwards. Uh, one of them go gets to uh, Cairo, uh, where the Mamluks uh, set him up as the new uh, Abbasid Caliph. They give him an army to go retake Baghdad, and this happens around 1260, 1261. Uh, he is defeated and killed in battle. Uh, and the uh, meanwhile, the uh, uh, Mamluks in Cairo uh, find another. Uh, uh, Abbasid uh, uh, heir, and he's like, 
you know, the third cousin of the fourth uncle of the caliph, right? Of the original, the caliph of Al-Matusim. And, uh, and they, they install him as, K- as caliph, as the caliph in Cairo, as Mamluk, but he has no power. He's literally put into a palace and he cannot leave that palace. And he's a figurehead. And uh, that remains uh, all the way up until uh, the 16th century when the Mamluk uh, dynasty finally falls to the Ottomans. It's only then that the Abbasid line is uh, uh, completely annulled. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a sad end. Like you literally have caliphs, you are born as a caliph and all you do is minor religious functions. Uh, and you cannot have any political power at all. So they're very much a figurehead for the rest for the next 300 years. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been the Mongol conquest of Baghdad. Before we go, do you have anything you want to promote on your social media where people might find you and the links you want me to put in the description below? Oh, hey, you know, um, I love if people can, you know, visit our website, medievalists.net. Uh, you know, we have a lot of things kind of going. Uh, you know, we, we we only recently started just doing online courses. So uh, check for that. Uh, I know we're kind of teaming up with like scholars around the world, really, to, you know, kind of teach uh, this and that. I'm, maybe we'll get like a Mongo course one day, I hope. Um, but yeah, check out our website. Uh, you know, uh, we have a really uh, good writers. We have a great writer named Jack Wilson. Uh, he's a graduate student up at uh, Central European University. He his his theme is the Mongols. Uh, uh, just uh, are really impressed by his work. Um, they you can visit us like we're on all the social medias. You know, Facebook, Twitter. I even have TikTok. Um, and yeah, you uh, if you like the Middle Ages, you know, check us out. Fit, see if there's ways you can support us. And uh, and you know, always love to hear back. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been well, that H12. We are available on Instagram and well, that H12. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. That would help us out a lot. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.